Well, we finally are back to our systematic theology lessons after a little break. And today we are transitioning into the doctrine of creation. And why are we going from the eternal decree of God now into the doctrine of creation? Well, if you look at our standards, uh, Shorter Catechism Question 8 tells us why. It says, how does God execute his decrees? And the answer is God executeth his decrees and the works of creation and providence. So it is in the work of creation that the eternal decree of God is brought to pass. Now, you may be thinking, okay, Jason got it. That's great. Let's flip over to Genesis 1 and 2 and get started, right? And of course, that makes sense. Where else would you go? The main place to go to discuss creation. But not so fast. Now, we are definitely going to spend some time in the opening chapters of Genesis and look at the days of creation and what was created. But before we do that, in this introduction to creation, I want to take a slightly different approach. There's a point of emphasis that I want to make today that I believe is crucial to understand before we go on to talk about the birds and the bees. Now, if you recall, when Pastor JP finished the doctrine of God, I was considering just doing a, one lesson on the eternal decree of God and then five lessons on creation, but decided instead to extend that discussion of the eternal decree of God to six lessons. And why? Because I argued that it's just as important to understand why God created the world and men as it is as knowing what he create, created. If you don't understand the why of creation, along with the what of creation, you're going to get yourself into some serious problems, even damnable heresy. And if you remember, I gave the example of hyperpreterism. There are some hyperpreterists who would agree that God created the world in six days. They agree that Adam and Eve were the first parents. But yet when we get to the other end of the Bible, all of a sudden they're denying the resurrection of the body. They're denying that Christ will return visibly and bodily. They deny the renewal of creation. We're told, according to them, that the earth that we read about at the end of the book is just a metaphor for spiritual things, quote-unquote. And, of course, they don't see a problem with these denials. And when you start talking to them about the importance of creation and the plan of redemption, they accuse you of being worldly-minded. You're just carnal. You're just focused on the flesh. You're not focused on the spiritual things and the kingdom of God. And to the unlearned, that all sounds great, like it did to me at one point. It sounds pious, it sounds spiritual, but it is absolute foolishness. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that such a denial is a rejection of the gospel. Now, I understand that hyperpreterism is a very tiny, dying movement, and it represents an extreme form of this type of thinking that I'm cautioning against here. But beloved, there's a lot of thinking that goes on like that, even in the broader, uh, the broader uh, evangelical world. It's very Gnostic light. In fact, last week, if you were here, Pastor Durbin touched on that very thing. I don't know if you caught that. My ears certainly perked up, and I thanked him afterwards. You remember, he talked about, for many Christians, the end game of our salvation is just to die and go to heaven. To leave this world, to leave our bodies, never to return. And so for many people, the what of creation is fun to talk about. I mean, it's cool. Biology, science, I like it. It's neat. 
But what's the purpose of it? What's the design? Far too many Christians look at creation as, as though it's just some curious little footnote in God's plan. In the minds of many Christians, it's as, it's as if God started off with this neat little plan involving creation, but then one, once Adam goofed it up, he aborted that plan and moved on to a spiritual salvific plan in which creation either serves no purpose at all or at the most a very minor temporary little side note role. But beloved, the point of the emphasis that I want to make to you today is the reality is that the reality is it's just the opposite of that. Creation is not a little footnote to redemption. It's not a little side hobby of God's. It wasn't part of a plan that God ditched to move on to plan B. It's not to be juxtaposed to the kingdom of God in order to show a radical contrast between creation and the gospel. Rather, creation is and always has been an essential piece of God's eternal plan of redemption. And at the center of that plan is the Lord Jesus Christ. At the very forefront of God's mind when creating the world is that the creation would not only be an object of his love and the stage on which his plan of redemption would be revealed, but creation is the very means by which the second person of the Trinity would reveal himself and bring about that eternal plan of salvation. And to dismiss or to minimize the role of creation and redemption is to dismiss and minimize Christ and his work. I want you to see that when we do begin to go through Genesis 1 and 2 and talk about the days of creation, the plants, the waters, the land, the sun, the moon, the stars, the beasts of the fields, the great creatures of the deep, and the eagles and hawks that soar through the sky, and the first man and woman, when we do talk about the dirt of this world, the flesh and physical life. Don't treat all of this as just some sort of interesting little side thing that God does that will eventually be seen in contrast to God's plan of salvation. Don't view it as some sort of disjointed plan A stuff that God eventually aborts. There has only ever been one plan, one decree, and creation is the plan. It is the very means by which God reveals his one eternal plan of redemption. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, in his work of atonement, is the heart and soul of that creation. Creation is not given to us as a contrast to spiritual things in the kingdom of God. It was and always has been a core, essential piece of his plan of redemption. And so to belittle it, or to dismiss it, as in the case of Hypocriterus and so many other Gnostic-like people, is to belittle and dismiss the Lord Jesus Christ, his work, and the gospel of the kingdom. If you take creation out of the plan, you no longer have a plan. You no longer have the incarnate Son of God. You no longer have a gospel. Well, now that I give you the main point of emphasis here, now the question becomes, well, how do I get you to that point biblically and theologically? How do we argue and develop this point? And this is where the introduction to, my, to creation is going to take a slightly different turn from what you're probably used to when talking about creation. 
What I'm going to do is I'm going to take a debate, a discussion that typically comes later down the road when you study systematic theology that you usually don't talk about until after you have discussed a view of man, the fall and salvation. And I'm going to bring that debate forward to discuss now uh, in order to develop this point that I'm making about creation. And that discussion is about the ordering of the decrees of God, a.k.a. the debate between infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism. Now, some of you are like, super what? Superlapsarianism? What is that, dinosaur that God created? What are you talking about? And there may be others, uh, others of you that are familiar with those words and discussion, but you're thinking, well, I know that discussion is about the order of God's decrees and how the decree of election relates to the decree of the fall, but I don't, I don't get where this is going with creation. And I can understand that reaction because as I mentioned, this discussion usually happens later down the road when we're looking at systematic theology. Even Robert Raymond in his systematic theology doesn't bring it up until he gets to the doctrine of salvation. So why bring it up now to talk about the birds and the bees? Well, here's why. When you look at the points of contention between the infra and supra views, and then when you especially consider Raymond's modified view as he expresses in his book, there is a powerful implication to be drawn from that discussion regarding the role of creation in God's eternal plan. Raymond even highlights that implication. So all I'm going to do is I'm going to take that specific part of this discussion, bring it forward and highlight it, so that when we dig into the what of creation, we will do so understanding the why of creation and not lose sight of that. What I'm trying to avoid here is just for us to start talking about the birds and the bees, and then you walk away from it thinking, well, that's cool. You know, I love science. I guess that's pretty neat. But where does that fit in the grand scheme of things? And my prayer is that this discussion will drive home the point of where creation fits in the plan. Another way to put it is this. Recall that when we talked about the eternal decree of God back weeks ago, we pointed out that technically there is only one eternal decree in the mind of God. One comprehensive, all-encompassing thought in the mind of God. However, when that decree is revealed to us, finite creatures, who are limited in time and space, we see that one decree in parts. And so we talk about the decrees, plural, of God. The discussion over infra versus supra has to do with how we should order those decrees, which in turn has us asking the question, what is the central, primary fact that governs how we order the decrees. So think about this for a second. It seems reasonable to me to think that if you can figure out what is the central governing principle to God's eternal decree, then you have also figured out what is the central driving purpose for God in creating the world. Because the creation of the world is the execution of his decree. So what then is this infra versus super debate all about? Now keep in mind, this discussion can get very technical and drawn out. There's a lot about it we're not going to talk about. We'll save that for later when we get into salvation. All I'm wanting to do today is introduce it to you and draw out of it implications that it has about creation. 
Well, in the Reformed world, and even in the broader evangelical world, there was much discussion about the decrees of God. What exactly those decrees were, and how we should understand them. In other words, what is God up to? What's his plan exactly? Does he even have a plan? And does he bring, how does he bring this plan about? How does God save people? Who exactly is he saving? And so on. Now, obviously, there were some major differences between the Reformers and the Roman Catholics. And you had the Reformed in their particular, pun intended, understanding of God's plan of salvation. <clears throat> but then you had others within the broader Reformed world who just couldn't get on board with that. Jacobus Arminius, for example, argued a hypothetical universalism. I say hypothetical because he didn't actually believe that God was going to save every individual. But Christ had died for all people, according to him, and God had conferred grace to all people. But it was ultimately up to the individual to exercise his free will, quote unquote, to determine whether he was going to be saved or not in the end. And in even saying that Christ died for all men, he did not die, according to the Arminians, as an actual penalty for their sins but rather as an example, because after all, if he had died, if he had actually paid for the sins of all people, all people would be saved. Well, then you had the Amaraldians. Amaraldus tried to take this middle ground between the Armenians and the Calvinists. He recognized that God had elected some and not others, and that the Spirit applies the benefits of redemption to, only to the elect. But he didn't want to let go of this false notion that Christ had died for all people. And so these people are sometimes referred to as four-point Calvinists. The major error of this view, though, is that it has the Son of God working at odds with the Holy Spirit. The Son dies for all people, but the Holy Spirit only wants to apply it to some. Well, it was in opposition to both of these hypothetical universalist positions that we have Calvinism. Understanding that God had elected particular individuals and sent Christ to atone for their sins and their sins alone. Christ did not die merely as an example, but actually paid the penalty for the sins of the elect. And the salvation of the elect did not depend on their exercise of free will, but upon the regenerating work and power of the Holy Spirit, quickening the person and applying salvation to that elect person. All Calvinists agree with this particularistic scheme or understanding of the plan. But the Calvinists, what became central to the plan was not that God wanted to save everybody and that Christ died for everybody, but that God elects individuals. Christ dies for the elect, and then the Spirit applies the benefits of salvation to the elect. All three members of the Godhead working consistently together to fulfill the single redemptive purpose of saving the elect. And so in the typical definition and ordering of the decrees within Calvinism, there were five main decrees that became the focus, and they're ordered as follows. First, God decrees to create the world and all men. Then God decreed that all men would fall into sin. Then God decreed to elect some fallen men to salvation and reprobate others. Fourth, God then decreed to redeem the elect by the work of 
Christ on the cross. And fifth, God decreed to apply Christ's redemptive benefits to the elect. Now, there's two things I want you to notice in this scheme of things. One, God's decree to elect precedes the decrees of the atonement of Christ and the application of it by the Spirit. It's ordered this way in order to show the elect, that the election of individuals, not every person without exception, is what determines the nature of Christ's atonement and the Spirit's application. Again, Christ did not die for everyone, and the Spirit does not confer grace to everyone. These things are only done for the elect. And so that drives the point home well against the Armenians and the Amaraldians. But the second thing I want you to notice is that in this scheme, the decree of election comes after or below God's decree of the fall. And that's where the label infralapsarian comes from. Infra is Latin for below or underneath or under, and lapsus is Latin for a fall. And so the decree of election comes after or below the decree of the fall, infralapsus. Now, some Calvinists took slight issue with this order. There are multiple reasons why, which we don't have time to get into, but one of the reasons I have heard often is that it portrays the election of men as some sort of afterthought to the fall. And so these men took the decree of election, which was in the third spot, and moved it up to the top to make it the principal governing decree. And that's where we get the label supra. Supra means above or before the fall. But there's another objection that was raised by the supras, and it is this objection that starts to get to the heart of where I'm going with all this. So bear with me. <laughs> Raymond writes, espousing as the infralapsarian uh, scheme does the view that the historical principle governs the order of the decrees and arranging it as it does the order of the decrees according, accordingly in an order that reflects the historical order of the corresponding occurrences of the events which they determine, this scheme can show no purposive connection between the several parts of the plan per se. In a single consistent purposive plan, one assumes that any and every single member of the plan should logically necessitate the next member so that there is a cohesion to the whole. The historical arrangement simply cannot demonstrate, for example, why or how the decree to create necessitates the next decree concerning the fall, or why the decree concerning the fall necessitates the following particularizing decree. Because the infralapsarian scheme can show no logical necessity between the first two decrees, that of creation and the fall, in the three following soteric decrees, it cannot give, and now he's quoting Burkhoff, a specific answer to the question of why God created the world and to permit the fall. Listen to this quote from Burkhoff. The infralapsarian position does not do justice to the unity of the divine decree, but represents the different members of it too much as disconnected parts. First, God decrees to create the world for the glory of his name, which means, among other things, that he determined that his rational creatures should live according to the divine law implanted in their hearts and should praise their maker. Then he decreed to permit the fall, whereby sin enters the world. This seems to be a frustration of the original plan, or at least an important modification of it, since God no more decrees to glorify himself by the voluntary obedience of all his rational creatures. 
Now, if this is going over your head a little bit, let me try to simplify this with an illustration. This past week, Kaylee put together a surprise birthday party for Jordan. He turned 21. Congratulations. Now, as you know, with surprise birthday parties, uh, you have to figure out how to get the birthday boy distracted, diverted. You got to, you know, whatever you got to do to make him late. And I was told this task of delay and diversion was given to Wesley. And I don't know what all happened, but when they finally got to the house, and Jordan was telling us about it, he was telling how, you know, Wesley was acting a little weird, a little funny. First, Wesley invited him to his house, which I guess he doesn't do very often <laughs> during the week. And then I heard something about Wesley asking Jordan if he wanted to jump into the hot tub. <laughs> and I think I heard something about after he asked that, he came out of his room fully dressed. So Jordan's like, what, what, what is it? What are we doing here? Jordan knew something was off, right? He just wasn't quite positive as to what was going on. He's thinking to himself, okay, why are you inviting me to jump into the hot tub? And why did you get fully dressed to do it? This is, we're not, it's not making sense. He can't quite figure it out, but something's off here. Wesley's asking one thing, but doing another. What's going on? Now, to Wesley, it makes sense, right? Because getting into the hot tub wasn't the end game of all this. I hope it wasn't. <laughs> it just... It was just a means to delay Jordan and buy some time. But since Jordan wasn't in on the plan, he couldn't quite figure it out. It wasn't making sense. And I'm sure eventually he kind of put two and two together. I'm like, well, it is my birthday, so maybe there's something going on here. But you see the point, right? If you're not in on the plan, then the historical ordering of the decrees presents some problems. First, God creates the world. Okay, great. Wonderful. But now God decrees the fall. Well, where'd that come from? Why are we doing this? That's the let's jump in the hot tub moment of history. It's like, where's this going? What's the connection? Why would God do that? Did God even need to do that? And so to resolve this dilemma, the supras move the decree of election to the top of the list to prioritize that decree, to explain the point of creation and of the fall. The creation and fall of man into sin serves the purpose of bringing about the salvation of the elect. However, we still have a slight problem, even with this superview. What's interesting here is that the superview is almost identical to the infraview. All they did was take one decree and move it. The other four decrees are left in the same order. And so in light of that, some men have come along with a modified superview where they kept the decree of election at the top, but then they took the remaining four and just flipped them upside down, just like that. And so you end up with this order. One, God uh, decreed the election of some sinful men into Christ. Two, God then decrees to apply Christ's redemptive benefits to the elect. Third, the decree to redeem the elect sinners by the work of Christ. Fourth, the decree that men should fall. And then fifth and last, the decree to create the world in men. Now, do you see the advantage that this modified view has? 
Remember, we're talking about the eternal plan of God. We're not dealing with time and chronology. We're talking about a logical ordering of things, a teleological purpose. In this scheme, each decree logically necessitates the decree after it. With the first decree, the election of men being the goal, as it stands at the moment, but we'll get more than that in a second, in order to make that happen, you have to apply a redemption to the elect. But in order to have a redemption to apply, Christ has to work out this salvation by his work of the cross. But if Christ is going to die for sinners, you've got to have men falling into sin. So there's the decree of the fall. But if you're going to have man falling into sin, you've got to have men. And so lastly, you have the decree to create the world and of men. Notice that what happens here? There is a logical, necessary relationship from one decree to the next. The fifth decree of creating men, which is the first that is executed in time and space, Genesis 1 and 2, first thing we read, serves the purpose ultimately to bring about the salvation of the elect, the first decree. So this finally brings me to my point of emphasis in all of this. Listen again to what I just said. The fifth decree of creating the world and men, which is the first that is executed in time and space, is done for what purpose? To bring about the fulfillment of the first decree. Because there is that logical necessity between the decrees, what is decreed last is exercised first in order to bring about the first decree. In other words, God created the world and men in order to save elect men. Now, before I wrap this up, I want to make one more revision, though, to this super scheme. I don't think it goes quite far enough. You might read that first decree and think that the ultimate end game here is the election of men. But I don't believe it is because Scripture does not make election ultimate. In fact, not everyone is elect. There is even a purpose in the non-election of some men. So rather, I believe that the ultimate end game here is the glorification of God, generally speaking, but in particular, the glory of the incarnate second person of the triune Godhead and his atoning work. That is what is central to the whole scheme. That is the governing principle, not election. Now, Raymond actually touches on this in his systematic, but I wish he would have made it more explicit when he listed the decrees. I mean, if we're going to modify things, let's go ahead and make it full and complete here. We don't start with election. Rather, we start with the triune Godhead and his covenant of redemption, in which the Father elects, the Son uh, takes on our flesh and blood as the incarnate God-man to purchase and redeem a people for himself, and the Spirit applies that salvation. It's the preeminence of Christ that is central to this whole thing, not the election of men. And I've said this before, the election of men is not an end to itself. It is a means to an end. And what is that end? What is the end game in all of this? It's the preeminence of Christ. That's the end game. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 3. He says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created 
all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might, might be know, made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice here for Paul, God who created all things, there's your creation, right? Makes known through the church that is his redeemed people, the manifold wisdom that is the eternal purpose that is realized in who? Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice in this text, there is and has only ever been one purpose. It's in the singular here. There are not multiple designs, multiple purposes. Two, Paul says that this plan is eternal. As Raymond points out, there was never a moment when God had a blank mind or a time when God's plan with all of its parts was not fully determined and settled. He never finally made up his mind about anything. And third, the person and work of Jesus Christ are clearly central to the plan because Paul says that God accomplished or effected it in Christ Jesus our Lord. This echoes something else Paul said in Ephesians 1. He says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Again, Raymond notes here that here we learn that God's eternal plan, which governs all of his ways and all of his works in heaven and earth, he purposed to fulfill in Christ. Christ as God's Alpha and Omega is at the beginning, the center, and the end of his eternal purpose. And so if we were to uh, modify this modified version a little bit, we might add a sixth decree and place it at the top. That decree being the eternal covenant of redemption between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and the glory and preeminence of Christ and his atoning work wherein all things will be made in subjection to him. That's the purpose for which election, among many other things, serves. So in closing, let's bring creation back into this and point out the massive implications this has. The last decree, that is the decree to create the world in men, which is executed first in time and space, serves what purpose? I'm back to the beginning. What is the point in all of this? It is the purpose of glorifying and making preeminent the incarnate Son of God. And notice carefully how I worded it. It's not just the preeminence of the Son of God, but the incarnate word. That's the end game that you need to be thinking about when we start going through creation. That's where all of it's heading. That's the purpose and goal of the work of creation. And so when you hear about God creating man, body, and soul, be thinking about the word who will take on body and soul and dwell among us, John chapter 1. Taking on body and soul to redeem us, made body and soul. When you hear about physical death being threatened upon disobedience of God's law, be thinking about that brutal death of our Lord Jesus Christ 
and the suffering that he endured on the cross in order to put to shame the rulers and authorities by triumphing over them in him. When you hear about Adam being charged to be faithful or fruitful, to multiply and exercise dominion over the earth, be thinking ahead about the resurrected last Adam, Christ, who ascended into the heavens at the right hand of the Father and was given all authority over all heaven and earth, Matthew 28. When you hear about the Sabbath, God taking a, a, a break from his creation, be thinking about the eternal Sabbath and the new heavens and new earth. Raymond writes, and I finish, contrary to the infralapsarian assertion that, quote, and here he's quoting from Charles Hodge, that creation in the Bible is never represented as a means of executing the purpose of election and reprobation. All superlapsarians insist that the created world must never be viewed as standing off over against God's redemptive activity, totally divorced from the particular, particularizing purpose of God, the ultimate concern of God's eternal purpose, as fulfilling some general purpose unrelated to the redemptive work of Christ. They, that is the supers, insist so on the ground that such a representation of creation shatters the unity of the one eternal purpose of God. Beloved, creation matters. Creation serves a purpose. It's not irrelevant. It's not a side hobby. It's not the remnants of some plan, a failed plan of God in the beginning. It is literally the substance, if you will, of our redemption. And without it, there is no salvation and there is no incarnate word and work of the gospel. But my time's up. But be thinking upon those things as we then move into uh, the what of creation and following lessons.